And I'd invite you to take a Bible with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Thanks, you guys, for leading us this morning, Kendra and Riley and Maddie and everybody. Thanks for your help today. Um, if you will turn with me to Matthew, the 23rd chapter, our text this morning is Matthew 23, uh, the first 12 verses. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples, the legal experts and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, you must take care to do everything they say, but don't do what they do. For they tie together heavy packs that are impossible to carry. They put them on the shoulders of others, but are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do, they do to be noticed by others. They make extra wide prayer bands for their arms and long tassels for their clothes. They love to sit in places of honor at banquets. They love to be greeted with honor in the markets and be addressed as rabbi. But you shouldn't be called rabbi because you have one teacher and all of you are brothers and sisters. Don't call anybody on earth your father because you have one father who is heavenly. Don't be called teacher because Christ is your one teacher. But the one who is greatest among you will be your servant. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, but all who make themselves low will be lifted up. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this morning, I would love for you to keep your Bible open. I need to do a little bit of teaching um, as we get into this this morning. Um, The last several weeks, we have been in chapters 21 and 22 of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus cleansed the temple in chapter 21, and then this question about the authority by which he does that, and so we get Uh, three parables that Jesus uses to explain his authority. And then, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, we get the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees asking various questions, trying to trap Jesus. But now, uh, in these last, and we only have four Sundays left before we enter into Advent, um, in these last few Sundays, we move to chapters 23 through 25. Now, chapters 23 through 25 are the last, the fifth block of teaching that Matthew puts together. And so as we've looked at in the past, Matthew is trying to narrate the life of Jesus through the life of Abraham and David and through the exile, that he is narrating the life of Jesus through the story of Israel. And one of the ways he has done that is he put five major blocks of teaching together in ways that scholars think was meant to be a kind of backbone to the book, but would also reflect the first five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that the books of the Torah, that Jesus, these five blocks of teaching would be a way of proclaiming not a new law, but a fulfillment of that law. And so now we are in this last block, chapters 23 through 25, which contains some warnings. Uh, We only get to look at one text, the text this morning from chapter 23 and 24. But chapters 23 and 24 is a long teaching block about how we should not be like the Pharisees and the other leaders of God's people at the time. And that the ways that they're leading the people lead them astray. And then chapter 24 will be about all the kind of judgment that is going to come upon Jerusalem, most likely in the form of AD 70, Titus, and those sweeping down upon Jerusalem. But a kind of weeping at the end of chapter 23, a heartbroken Jesus over where this is headed and how it is all leading to a kind of brokenness. And then the next three weeks, we will look at chapter 25, three successive parables about how we can move away from that brokenness and be prepared for the newness that God has for us in Christ. 
And so in chapter 23, we get frustration and grief over how the people are being led. In chapter 24, prophetic warnings. And then chapter 25, these parables about being prepared. Now, here's the deal in this text about the Pharisees. The Torah, or the books of the law, they are not the problem. In fact, the text begins by saying, the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses and teach the people how to live the law. And Jesus doesn't have any problem with that. That's what the leaders are supposed to do, invite people into the ways of God and lead them in those ways. The problem is not the law. The problem is for the Pharisees, how they are living that out, and in particular, the motivation through, by which they are living out the law and teaching others to do the same. And out of that, then, there is a life that follows from those wrong motivations that ends up bringing a kind of brokenness not only to the people, but ultimately to the Pharisees and ultimately to the whole people of God. So as we think about that this morning, and what is the problem with the Pharisees, um, I can't help but think about how the Pharisees are meant to be a kind of parental guidance to the people of God. And so it makes me think about my own parenting and Deb and our parenting together. So as I was thinking about, what do I want our four kids and um, now our in-law kids, um, what do I want most for them? And the answer to that is, is kind of easy. The first thing I want for them is to love God. Um, I want them to know and to love God in the ways that, that hopefully they've seen Debbie and I know and love God. But I want them to know and to love God. And then I want them to discover the uniqueness of who they are and the giftedness that God has given them, but not just discover that, but to discover that in such a way that then they can use that for the sake of others, that they have been created in God's image with certain gifts, and now they can discover that and use that for the sake and purpose of others. And I so deeply desire them to understand their uniqueness, but also to turn around and use that for others in the world. And then... Lastly, I want them to live healthy and beautiful lives that, that bring goodness, or at least more goodness than brokenness into the world. And so I, I want them to love God. I want them to know who they are. And then I want them to live lives that are healthy and reflections of the love and mercy and grace of God and bring healing and not brokenness into the world. That's, I, I hope you would feel that way too as, as you think about your children and grandchildren and even uh, the young people in the church that God has given to us. But here's the problem. The problem is I have a Facebook account and an Instagram account and a couple of other social media accounts. And the reason that's a problem is not inherently in itself, but it's that I'm, uh, I'm a pastor and, and I am a pastor's kid. In fact, I'm not just a pastor's kid. I'm the pastor's kid of pastor's kids. And so everybody in my family has known that in our little community and universe called the church, we kind of live in a fishbowl. And uh, a couple of pastor's kids who are here are nodding along with me. Uh, that we live in a kind of fishbowl. And so sometimes I am less concerned about the reality of their relationship with God than I am with the appearance of the reality of their relationship with God. Because I know that Growing up in the church, people paid attention to the kids and what they were doing, but they really paid attention <laughs> to what my sister and I were doing. And I know as much as we have tried to shield and help and protect our own kids, that, and, and let me say, the churches we've been a part of have been incredibly gracious to us and gracious to them, but I still know that they talk about them. 
And they see them, and they observe them, and they want to know, what are the pastor's kids doing? And what kind of parents are we, depending upon how they live out? And so I really want them to have a, God, a relationship with God, but mostly I want them to look like they have a really good relationship with God for the sake of their parents. And if I'm honest, there are moments when they accomplish things, and I can't post that fast enough on Facebook or Instagram. Um, I know that, you know, we're supposed to be nice and everything and say, like, academics is not a competition. And I have to say that because uh, we gave our kids our athletic DNA. And so they had some success with athletics, but we we're mainly hoping for some payoff in some other areas. And so when they accomplished those things and when the name was read and it's one of our kids, man, we're taking those pictures, we're posting that, and, I, and we're posting that to celebrate them. But we're also kind of posting that to kind of live vicariously through them. And I want to be able to celebrate. Thankfully, we've never uh, put the bumper sticker on the back of our car. This is our kid is, you know, an honor student at wherever. Um, we've come close. Uh, but we have posted all those other kinds of things of ways of being proud, which there's something so good about and so right about, and I'm going to continue to do. But here's the problem. If that becomes the way that my children begin to believe that we love them because they continue to accomplish all these things, and the reason that they're valued by us is because we get to post all these great things about them, my fear is that when things don't go that well, that not only will they begin to question whether Deb and I really love and value them, but the question is, can they ever really be honest with us about those struggles then? When challenges come and when defeats happen, can they be honest with not only us, but even with themselves about that? And is there the kind of trust and vulnerability in our relationship that allows them to be able then to talk about not just the good things and the celebrations, but the challenges? And then worse off, especially if you're in a kind of big family like ours has turned out to be, as much as you don't want it to be, there are moments when, when then life becomes a kind of competition, a rivalry between siblings, a rivalry in a household. And as much as we want to say it's not, there are moments where it can feel like that, it can turn into that, where it can feel like there are winners and losers and, and we want winners. And here's why you and I have to get this right. Um, because the great theologian Harry Chapin sang back in 1974, as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. Let's sing it together. It should be in the hymnal. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you're coming home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together. It's even making me cry just reading the words. We'll get together dad, then, Dad. You know, we'll have a good time then. The song makes me cry every time it's on the radio. Why? Because we recognize that those patterns that we, we were shaped by, we now carry over into the next generation. And some of those hopefully have been healthy, but some of those have been kind of broken. And we, as humans, try to do our best to love our children unconditionally and create an environment by which they can love God, come to discover what their giftedness is for the sake of others, and then live out healthy relationships that bring wholeness and goodness to the world. But we know that in our humanness, there are times when we fail at that. And when we fail consistently at that, we create patterns that just continue to kind of follow through. Now, why is that important to this text? Because as we think about the Pharisees, here are the three things the Pharisees have done. They've taken the law, 
Jesus says, the Torah. They've taken the Torah, which was meant not as a kind of obstacle course to see who could get through it, so that it's as though God is saying, well, I can't take everybody into my people, and so let's create a kind of exam to make sure that only the few, the proud, the brave can get through this, and so get through the law, and we'll see who can follow it. That the law was not intended as an obstacle course to God. The law was intended to take a broken world that was disconnected from God, and therefore broken in relationship to each other and the creation, and even in relationship to self, and to restore that. So as this relationship with God is healed, then all these other relationships are healed too. And here's kind of what that looks like then in the Torah. If we live that out, we will participate in a healing of God's creation. But here's what the Pharisees did. They took something that was intended for good, and they turned it around and made it a burden for people. And it was no longer a life-giving, but it, it brought hurt and pain and destruction and chaos, and, and it became not a gift, but a trial. It became not a blessing, but a burden. And the more they lived into that, then they became less and less concerned with the reality of holiness, with the reality of connection with God, with the reality of healing and blessing and goodness in the world. They became less and less enamored or focused on that, they became more and more set on appearing to be those things. And so as Jesus says, it became this kind of contest to see who could wear those phylacteries, those boxes with the law on their head or on their hand, who could get the biggest box, who could have the longest prayer tassels, who could, who could pray in the street corners and make a display of themselves, that the appearance became more important than the reality. And then out of that brokenness, this whole pursuit of the law then was turned into a competition. And those who did it best could get cool titles like rabbi or teacher. And they pursued those kinds of places of honor, ways to be seen as great, but not actually being great. And as I think about that and trying to put together what it means to be a good parent and what does it mean to be a good leader of God's people. Why are the Pharisees leading the people astray and a source of heartbreak by the end of chapter 23 for Jesus that he would weep over them and weep over Jerusalem? What's the problem? If I could narrow the problem down to one thing, and, and I, there's part of me that wants to say, after being with you for five plus years now, if there's one thing I could kind of put in your heart and imagination, it is this. Years ago, I, I was reading a theology book, and um, the, the theologian was talking about a certain kind of debate that was going on in theological circles of the moment. And I noticed down in the footnote, there was a really long footnote, and I don't know what drew my attention to it, but, I, but maybe it was just the length of the footnote, but I went down and read the footnote. And the footnote talked about the, the actual time when these two groups got together and began to argue it out. And it talked about kind of the deceitfulness and the anger that was shown by kind of one group. And the, the theologian writing it said this, I guess the problem is, and this line has stuck with me ever since, I guess the problem is we inevitably come to look like the God we believe in. I've said this to you before, but, but I don't think you listen. So write it down. Put it in the margin of your Bible. We inevitably come to look like the God we believe in. That line has stuck with me for well over 10 years now. And here's the problem. I am convinced for the Pharisees, it's not that they are necessarily bad people. But they have come to understand God this way. 
that they make the law a burden because they view the law as a burden. They see the law not as a gift from God to bring life, but they see God as one who has imposed the law upon them in order to see if they will be good or not, to see if they measure up. They see God as a lawgiver who gives a law because he hopes that they don't measure up. And so it becomes a burden for us, not a gift that brings life. And they cannot be honest with God because they see God as a kind of parent who's most concerned with the appearance of his people, not with the integrity of their lives. And so it's impossible for them to admit their own vulnerability, to admit their own weakness, to admit their own failures, to confess their own sins in vulnerability and honesty because they are convinced that God is most concerned with how they appear and look. And because the law is a way of gaining approval, then the law is not a means of transforming human community or drawing folks who have been broken by sin and divided like at the Tower of Babel, all of these folks divided from each other. The law is not a way of healing that division. The law is just one more form of competition in the world, but now it's our competition There's all these other competitions in the world between the rich and the poor, the educated, the uneducated, etc. So that life is always a kind of competition. And rather than healing that, bringing us together, the law becomes our way of being able to compete and say, oh, but we may not win those battles, but we win the holy battle. And even within our own community then, some get elevated and drawn all sorts of attention But what breaks Christ's heart by the end of chapter 23 and makes him weep over the city is not just that the Pharisees are leading the people astray, but when I read this text and I have a heart for the Pharisees, it's this. I think they live that way because that's who they think God is. That God parents like too often we do. Imposing the law as a way of seeing if they'll obey or not of learning that we can have power if we withhold love. And forever our children will chase a carrot that they can never quite capture as long as we withhold love. Give just enough to keep them going, but withhold enough to keep them working. And like us, then we create this competition in our family systems and community, and we participate in that kind of way. And what the Pharisees have done is they have imposed themselves onto God. And now they have a God who looks just like them. And now they look just like the God they believe in. But what Matthew is trying to narrate is Christ has come to reveal the heart of God. And this is what God is like. As another gospel, the gospel of John will say... In that verse that comes right after, maybe the best-known verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, John will write this, the Son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him all the world might be saved. Christ did not come into the world. The, The law was not given. Christ did not come to fulfill all of the purposes of the law in order to show us a new kind of hurdle 
so that sometimes I think we can read Jesus in this way. The Pharisees had this hurdle to go over, and he said, well, that's not a very good one. Now I'm going to super, if you can get over that, wait till you see these. So it's not unusual even for people to read Matthew and see the Sermon on the Mount as a kind of supersizing of the law, as though we, Jesus just took the hurdles and raised them about three or four more notches. So if we thought we could get over them now, we know we will stumble. But Christ did not come in order to raise the bar for us to get over, but came into the world not to condemn us, but to bring life and to invite us into the ways of life. And to not just have a kind of holiness, a kind of relationship with God that focuses on the externals, which is really a religion for others and not for God. But to give us a faith that Paul will describe as a circumcision of the heart. That as Paul thought about the external part of the law of circumcision, he realized the whole point of that was not so that we could mark ourselves and be better or different than others, but so that God could mark his people at the deepest place in their existence and they could know that they were his and he was theirs. And so our hearts have to be circumcised. And so for us in this tradition, when we're at our best, we recognize that sanctification is not a focus on external legalism. It is the transformation of the intentions of our life through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Sanctification is not the meeting of some external list of legalism. It is the transformation of our heart in the Spirit by love so that the intentions of our heart are to obey God. And when that happens, then we no longer are in a competition for God's attention or for God's favor, or we're trying to figure out and compare who's holier than the other. When we live that kind of life, then what we end up with is an understanding that the one who has the greatest title in the world, Lord of all creation, is also the one who emptied himself to become the servant of all. And so titles, and I, I want to be careful with this text as somebody who has a couple of titles. Titles do not become the end in themselves, a way of achieving favor. But titles become a way for us to, to access the giftedness that God has given to us so that the title that is given to us will open doors for us to be a greater servant to more and more people. So the beauty of getting to be, have the title pastor is not the honor that comes with it. There are honors that come with it, right? <laughs> just, just checking. There are honors that come with it, I promise. But the title is given so that you have the opportunity to be a blessing to those you get to call brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a lot of folks in this congregation who have doctor in front of their name. And much like me, they're the kind that can't help anybody. There's a couple that can help people. But most of us are the kind that can't. But it's not the pursuit of the title that matters. That title opens the door then for us to be a blessing in the lives of students who are on their journey. And now because we have done that work and accessed the giftedness of God in us, now we can access the giftedness of God in them. The title does not matter. And that's why Jesus can say, if you want to be great, be a servant. Whatever titles are given to you in life become a moment for you to be able to better be a blessing in service to others. Let me land this plane. So I was thinking about this text um, in the light of, 
a couple of lectures I've been giving uh, over the last week or so. So I'm, I'm teaching two classes right now. One, as I said, the history of the church of Nazarene. And then I'm, I'm teaching my intro to theology class. And in my intro to theology class, um, I, I give a lecture every semester about this time in the semester. And I've talked to you about it two or three times. Um, but I always talk at some point about a sociologist, um, kind of early sociologist by the name of Emil Durkheim, and his theory that's called totemism. Um, quickly, Durkheim was studying tribes in the jungle and began to realize that these tribes wanted to pass on part of their life to their children. And in order to survive in the jungle, they needed to pass on certain virtues or qualities, things like courage or bravery, um, wisdom. You, you can't eat up all your resources before winter comes. Fascinatingly for Durkheim and for others, the, tri the tribe wanted to pass on kind of sneakiness or slyness even onto their children uh, to be able to navigate or manage uh, life in the jungle. But Durkheim says eventually those virtues, those qualities become associated with various totems, usually naturalistic ones. So, you know, courageous as a lion, brave as a bear, wise as an owl, sly as a fox. Like we, we get those kinds of totem relationships. But Durkheim says eventually what happens then is that the tribe takes those totems and begins to honor them, um, create rituals of adoration, and in his language begins to worship them. And so Durkheim asked this question, when the tribe is actually worshiping the lion or the bear or the owl or the fox, when the tribe is giving honor to those totems, what are they actually doing? And the answer is they're, they're actually giving honor to their own virtues. So that Durkheim's theory of religion is this, religion is a complex process people go through to end up worshiping themselves. And I give that lecture every semester and I've, I've said it to you two or three times because not because I think Durkheim is ultimately right. I hope he is not. But I do think that process is a temptation. And so I always say to students, how often do we go to church and we don't hear the first century, we don't hear proclaimed the first century Jesus from Nazareth who, who lived among peasants, who blessed the poor, who led a revolution in Jerusalem of connecting us back to God and who died and was killed on our behalf how often does that Jesus just come out sounding like um, <laughs> a middle-class American who wants us to just succeed in the world? How often does Jesus not become the Jesus of Scripture, but become the Jesus that is just a, a summary of what we would like our children to be? And so I was giving that lecture this week on totemism, but then I was... Um, in my history of the church in Nazarene class, we had moved past the, what I mentioned earlier, the, the Depression era, World War I, World War II, and we were now solidly in the 50s, where, where we moved as a denomination from being kind of rural to being suburban. Everybody started moving to the suburbs. And the problem in the suburbs is that there are malls there and theaters there, and kids go to high schools, and they have homecomings there. And, and so, like, all of this kind of um, very otherworldly life that we were living as rural folks, all of a sudden is confronted with Star Wars, if you will, um, is confronted with what are we going to do with all of these things? Should we, should we get earrings or not, right? And so it was funny to deal with uh, kids in, you know, 2020 and talk to them about this huge divide we had in a church. We had a major fight at General Assembly over televisions. Could people own televisions or not? 
could people wear wedding rings? And the church decided we would just let people kind of let the Lord lead them as to whether they could have televisions or not. And that was not good. And a whole bunch of people left and started a whole new denomination. And it was so funny to watch these students just have no sense for what that would mean, right? Because they have uh, 18 televisions. Um, but as I was thinking about the church in that era and folks trying to be holy, I couldn't help but put those two together and say, as I think about that generation and that generation that has shaped a few of us, what was happening there? What was happening there was a tendency for us to take our understanding of God and a God who looks like us, a God who knows how to withhold love in order to have power, a God who gives us the law in order to test us, not to give us life. A God who is watching us, and if we step out of line at all, is so ready to smite us. Like, that's our understanding, and that's how we live. And so then we, we put that upon the nature of God. And we not only have a God who looks like us, but then we end up in a reciprocal way looking like that very God that we now worship. And what Christ is weeping about and what Christ longs for us to see is that is not the God he came to reveal. He came to reveal a God who loves us and wants to give us life. A God who is not as interested in the externals as he is in a heart that is right with him. And in a God whose heart is broken when we get into a competition with each other as though we are rival siblings trying to get at the front of the table so that we can show how connected to God we are and receive all the honor that comes with that. It reveals God as a God who wants to make all things new and who wants us to have a heart with him and then wants us not to not achieve but to work so that we can access the the gifts that God has given us for the sake of those who are in need. So that we are not a people who look like the God who looks like us and we just continue to pass that from generation to generation to generation. But that we give up our idolatry and receive the God revealed in Christ so that he does not look like us. <laughs> but Christ came so that we might look like him and look like him in the ways that we parent and grandparents, look like him in the ways that we care for each other as the body of Christ, that look like him in the ways that we relate to our neighbor, even those who might think that they're our enemy. And until we do that, Christ weeps because that other life just leads to more brokenness and devastation. And we just keep teaching generation after generation after generation a broken way of living in front of a false God. But may God have mercy on us. And by His grace, may we learn the reality of God and become a reflection of who God is. And may that then shape the way we live with others.
for we will inevitably come to look like the God we believe in. And may that God we believe in, may that be the God that we see in our Lord Christ Jesus. God, help us today. Help us to be your church. Help us to be a people not like the Pharisees who who live out of a distorted understanding of who you are that then leads to a distorted understanding of the law and a distorted understanding of exterior religion and, an, and that leads to just this weird competition among people over who's holy and who's not. Have mercy not only on the Pharisees, have mercy on your children who for 2,000 years have often, way too often gotten that wrong also. But thanks be to you, our God, who is patient and gracious and refusing to give up on your people who you keep calling us back to the heart of Christ. And so teach us how to see you through the lens of Jesus. May we know that we are loved. May we know that what you have called us to be and to do is not for your sake, but for ours. You've come to give us life and life more abundantly. And so may we live in obedience to you, not out of some fear of you, but out of a response to your love. And may we then learn what it means to be open and honest before you, not in some exterior spirituality in order to gain other people's attention, but in a heart that longs for your knowledge and connection and transformation. And then may that flow over into the ways that we deal with each other as families, as we live together as the body of Christ, and as we witness to who you are to the world. May the world know that you are the God of love revealed in Christ and transforming through your spirit because that is the God who is reflected in us. And so bless us and help us. We cry out to you. We weep with you for how often we get that wrong but we weep tears of joy and rejoice because you can make all things new. And so we offer ourselves to you. I pray especially for some of my sisters and brothers and maybe even to some degree myself who have had heavy burdens imposed on them, who have been shaped by distorted views of who you are. And that has been ingrained deep into their imagination for sisters and brothers who've been abused by parents and who've had authority figures misuse them. And so now, so often, that is now translated and posed in their relationship with you. May you break that. May you heal that. May the reality of who you are sweep in and transform us then in how we respond to you and how we respond to others. Come, heal us. Make all things new. Give us your life and give it abundantly. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.